I hope you have your Bibles open. We're going to be, you might as well just mark your Bibles at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in here for a very long time. This series is slated to run through the end of October. Last week, I covered one word. We're actually going to pick up the pace to a collective sigh. So we're going to look at verse 3, which is the first beatitude. But let me read to you something from Ralph Waldo Emerson. He was an American poet. He wrote a very famous essay. Now, this is very important right at the beginning that you grab hold of what I'm telling you. I'm going to give you five quick hitter points before we even get going on the first main point. Here's the first of the quick hitters. He wrote an essay called Self-Reliance. Now, already some of you That ought to be grabbing hold of you because you're very, very self-reliant. I could be like that as well. A summary creed from that essay, self-reliance, goes like this. Here's what he wrote. Trust thyself, every heart vibrates, vibrates to that iron string. Discontent is the want or the lack of self-reliance. I'm going to read it again because that's a little bit deep. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Discontent is the lack of self-reliance. So obviously he's holding up the virtue of self-reliance, and he ends it with these five words, six words. It is infirmity of the will. It is sickness of the will to lack in self-reliance. You see, Emerson believed that the sickness of the world is really the lack of self-reliance. John Piper, some of you know him, he's a theologian, pastor, writer, he responded to this essay this way, quote, Jesus takes the disease that we hate the most, namely helplessness, and instead of curing it, he makes it the doorway to heaven. Now, I'm going to read that one again because that one is equally deep. Jesus takes the disease that we hate the most, helplessness, and instead of curing it, he makes it the doorway to heaven. Now, that was quick hitter number one. Listen to this one from John MacArthur. Poverty of spirit is not a necessary human work to make us worthy, but a necessary divine work to make us see that we are unworthy and cannot change our condition without God. Poverty of spirit is a divine work. Now, already this might be challenging some of your perspectives. I'm wanting it to shape the way that we think of poverty of spirit. The Sermon on the Mount the greatest sermon ever preached, describes the heart and the lifestyle of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to take this the next step in just a moment. But what you're going to see in these eight Beatitudes are the virtues of the kingdom of God. And every one of the citizens in the kingdom of God must possess them. Now, what we're looking at today is poverty of spirit. What I'm already arguing is that you must, I must, if you are in the kingdom of God, possess this virtue. The world doesn't see it as a virtue. The kingdom of God does. And every Christian 
is to manifest all eight of the Beatitudes, not just one or two of them. I've got, I've got those three down. I've got to work on the next five. I've got six down, and I need to work on the next two. We've got to manifest all eight of them. And importantly, not one of them are natural inclinations of our hearts. So there's not one beatitude that is natural to the world. They're only natural if you are living in the kingdom of God as his disciple. But I'm going to take it to the next level. Quick hitter number three. This sermon does even more than describe the heart and the lifestyle of a disciple. Now, this, this is utterly, urgently important, what I'm going to tell you. It does more than that. You ready? It describes the heart and the lifestyle of Jesus. That's what's so beautiful about the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus in written form. This is Jesus saying, this is who I am. This is what my heart looks like. This is what my life looks like. And this is what I'm helping you become. I'm going to help you become like me. You want to know what I'm doing with you? Then the Sermon on the Mount tells you exactly what Jesus is doing to every disciple. These beatitudes is what he's doing in your heart as he's transforming them. The rest of the sermon is how he's going to impact your life with a new heart. Here's the last one. I think I've only had four, actually. The last one is this. Writer, theologian, Daniel Doriani said something amazing. And this has to be the foundation. Or you're going to walk out of here just like somebody did last week, Sunday morning, when he came up to me and said, I don't even think I'm a Christian. Now, he may not be. I don't know. He needs to do that before the Lord and let the Lord search his heart. I don't know. I don't know if you are a Christian or not. God knows. But if you don't understand what I'm about to tell you, if you don't hear this very, very carefully, you're going to walk out of here feeling incredibly discouraged. This will inflate your souls. Here's what Doriani writes. By grace, God sent his son. By grace, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. By grace, he atoned for our sins. By grace, the Father raised Jesus from the tomb and sent the Spirit to testify to him. By grace, God completes his work by changing our hearts so that we love him and believe in him. This is how we become like Christ from heart to toe. It is a work of grace. The work of the gospel is all about heart transformation. And every person is born with a spiritual heart. Everybody. There is nobody born with a non-spiritual heart. Everybody has a spiritual heart. And every single person ever born since Adam... That would be everybody because he was created. Every single person's heart has been corrupted by an internal sinfulness. Now, I know that is really hard to, to see when you're holding a precious, beautiful baby. But inside the soul, inside the spiritual heart of that baby is a compelling selfishness. 
that will find expression as he or she grows. He was born, she was born a sinner. Now, you might see that baby as perfectly innocent with a heart that is a moral blank slate, and your theology might believe everybody's born with a blank slate, and then something gets written onto it from social, environmental, family, environmental factors. It gets written on that innocent heart. That's not what the Bible tells you. The Bible says everybody is born with a heart of sin. And while a sinner's heart varies in degree from person to person, every human being ever born has an orientation in their heart that is ultimately for themselves rather than God and rather than ultimately even other people. The problem, however, is not a lack of education. The problem really is not completely blamed by socio-environmental factors. It's not even the personality of a person. The problem is sin. A person might be very religious, might serve at the local church, generously giving to the needy, but until there's a heart change below all of those altruistic behaviors beats a sinner's heart. The heart is the fountain It's the source, and the only solution is a heart transplant. And this is the blessing behind the number one foundational beatitude. Here we go. Number one, here's the first point, first main point. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, we're going to unpack exactly what the poor in spirit look like. Who are they? But let's look a little bit prematurely before we get to that, back at the blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, you remember, the word are, as you see it flow down throughout that text, verses 3 through 12, that word are is not in the original manuscripts. It's just blessed. They're declarations. This is Jesus declaring who the blessed are. And he's preaching Or he has been, if you go back one page to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, just flip back there. Look what he's been doing. He's he's been began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And those who repent, you know what that means, right? It means you're confronted with the reality of your situation and that you can do nothing to fix it. And you come to the Lord and say, I am a sinner. I don't want to be a sinner. But I don't know how to turn away from it. Can you help me? That's repentance. You stop relying on your goodness. You stop relying on your effort. And you completely begin to rely on Jesus. That's repentance. So he's preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So those who repented, here's what happens. They received a new spiritual heart. Now I'm going to tell you very, very quickly. You're going to have to listen quickly to this because I'm going to run out of time if I tell you too many stories. But I grew up, some of you know, I grew up in central New York and we were the first house going out of town. The town limit ended just before you get to our house. We were up on a hill and idyllic uh, view. You could see for miles behind my house were 15 to 20 miles of hills and woods and 
pastures. I mean, it was amazing. You would think this is the nicest place to live until you drill a well down into the hill and you discover you've got a whole table of sulfur water. So I grew up with sulfur water. And every time that I go up to see my mom and my family goes with me, what we do, this is one of the things we do when we go see grandma, is we take all of her water bottles, about 16 of them, and we drive five miles outside of town where there is a pipe drilled into the side of a sloping forested hill. And out of that water gushes some of the best water I have ever had in my life. We take a cheesecloth, rubber band, tie it around the end of that pipe, and fill up all 16, 18 of those gallon jugs with water. That's what my mom drinks. That's how I grew up. We always grew up going to get the water. Now, the point of why I'm telling you this is that the well drilled into the hill where my home is gushes sulfur water. The pipe drilled into the side of the hill gushes pure water. What happens when you repent is that Jesus gives you a new well. He gives you a new source of life. It did gush undrinkable, unsustainable water of life, figuratively speaking, but the new heart now gushes pure water. And what he does with a believer for the entire life of a disciple is teach how do we live with this new life, this new heart, and how do you walk in obedience to God? How do you become like Jesus? And the first attitude to become like Jesus is this one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But most of us are Gentiles living in 2017. What would, what would it have been like for a Jewish person sitting or standing on the mountain where Jesus was preaching, hearing this? How would they have received this? Here's what you need to know. Go back to Matthew chapter 4. Look what's been happening in verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, now healing, and I would underline this if I were you, every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. Interesting, isn't it? All Syria in today's modern times. And they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he, he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So on the slopes of that mount, that day, listening to this sermon, listen, were thousands of people, not a few dozen, not even really a few hundred, thousands. The crowd was electrified. He's been healing everybody of every disease. Great crowds were following him. And the disciples were in wide-eyed wonder. He picked me to be one of his Talmud, one of his disciples. What an incredible privilege that I get to be this rabbi's disciple. And his first word explodes in their ears, blessed. Now you remember, 
their Jewish minds translated this to mean that God was about to deliver them from Rome and restore their national honor and power. That's what they all were thinking, that here comes the Messiah, the Messiah was going to free them, and now they're going to be the epicenter of the entire planet again. This is what he's doing. Blessed is the pronouncement that the king has come. He's about to move militarily. But then verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I want you to imagine the disciples. This is how I imagine them. Out of respect, keeping their eyes appropriately aimed toward their rabbi, but their eyes screening left and right to see if the other guys were reacting like they were. What do you mean, poor in spirit? This hardly sounds triumphant. I imagine the people in the crowd whispering to each other, did you hear what I just heard? Blessed be the victorious be the triumphant? No. Blessed be the poor in spirit. Doesn't sound very victorious, does it? Surely that cannot be what divine blessing looks like. So let's get a little bit better understanding. Poor. Poor in spirit. Let's, let's drill into this a little bit. Let's unpack it. Poor describes not just someone who lacks but someone who is completely destitute. Now, I would put that in your Bibles if I were you, because there are people who are poor, like the woman in the treasury in the temple that threw her final two copper pennies into the treasury. She was poor, but that's not this word, because she still had money. Even though she threw it all, she still had something. This word means you have nothing. You are completely destitute. See, the Greek people, when Jesus was alive on earth, connected this word for poor with an image of a beggar crouching in the corner with a hand out for help while the other hand covering his face so nobody could recognize him. This is how the Greeks viewed someone who was totally destitute. They are a cringing, crouching beggar. Their attitude, the Greeks, the attitude towards the poor was that it was a despised state. Plato tried to legislate that the poor would be banished, and if anyone attempted to beg, he would be driven across the border of his land, their land, and wholly purged, so that the land would be wholly purged by such a creature. That's how Plato wrote about this kind of a poor person. This word poor that Jesus uses describes a person who has absolutely nothing. Not a little bit, not, not, a, not enough to pay the electric bill, but I've got some that I can put toward. No, this is a person who has nothing. But let's get a little bit better view of this. You ready? Jesus doesn't, he's not speaking Greek here. He's speaking a language rooted in the Old Testament, Hebrew and Aramaic, both of them. Early in the Hebrew language, poor was used in the literal sense where you just lacked material necessities. But then it evolved. It evolved four times. Here's the first one, or three times. It evolved to mean someone who has no power, no prestige, no influence to defend himself in the world. That's what we call now the vulnerable. 
But then it evolved again to describe the downtrodden, what we call the oppressed. But finally, the poor, here's the final one, the poor were understood as also those who had no help on earth and trusted themselves to the one who could help from heaven, God. So this is now the biblical fullest view of the word poor. You have nothing on earth. You have no help on earth. There's no resources coming your way from other people on earth. Now you shift your hope to God. That's what this word means. That's how it was rooted in the Old Testament. You get to see it in a few ways. You get to see it in a lot of ways. I'll give you three. Psalm 34, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Psalm 35, all my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. And then Psalm 40, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay oh my god so this is the poor person's heart it has shifted from looking for help on this earth because none is coming to now going vertical god i am appealing to you the poor in spirit are those who have come to realize their utter absolute total inadequacies their worthlessness, their destitution, and they begin to shift to God for help. That's what it means to be the poor in spirit. They have no confidence in their own righteousness, but they have every confidence in God's mercy. Now, where do we see this? Well, you see it in the prodigal son who had nothing. He squandered the inheritance. He got to the point where he repented looking to heaven and cried out for forgiveness from the God of heaven. And then he returned to his father and was blessed. That's poor in spirit. It is a tax collector of Luke 18 who beats his chest while a Pharisee or a scribe mocks him. And he's beating his chest and he's praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. But I've got to take you a little bit deeper. Especially with our modern thinking in mind. All right, so here we go. I'm going to take you to the bottom level of what it means to be poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are not those who have a mousy, shy, nervous, introverted personality. That's not what it means to be poor in spirit. This is not personality-based. You could be strong. Now listen, you need to hear this. You could be strong, and you could be tenacious, and you could be tough and possess a poor spirit. It is simply, beautifully, realizing our sin and our inability to reform ourselves. You see, the poor in spirit are utterly conscious of their need for God's mercy and power. But here's the bottom of it. All that to get you ready for this. Poor in spirit, well, when you think of this, I want you to think of the word emptied. They're emptied. That's one of the uses of this word. 
The the poor in spirit are those who have been emptied of their self-confidence, of their self-assurance, of their self-reliance. And this is exactly how the gospel works. See, gospel preaching, gospel counseling, listen, you got to know this, Christian, gospel conversation centers on Jesus And notice what the elderly Simeon, who was in the temple courts, said when he held the baby Jesus. You're going to watch the gospel. You're going to watch what Jesus will do. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed, here it is, for the fall and rising of many in Israel. See, that's the two sides of the gospel. There's bad news and there's good news. The gospel must make a person fall before it will help them rise. If the person doesn't fall and realize that they are emptied of self-confidence, emptied of self-reliance, emptied of self-righteousness, there is no compelling need to rise. The gospel puts you in its sights. It shows you you're a sinner. You must fall on your empty soul before the Lord and appeal to him. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. The gospel is doing its work. You see, before God can fill us with blessings, we must be emptied of any confidence at all in our goodness. This was, by the way, what was lacking in the church at Laodicea. For you say, I am rich, Jesus said. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, they were not poor in spirit. They did not see their true condition. The gospel had not yet penetrated. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, but now we're really going to get to see some fun stuff. Look at point number two, the contrast between the world and the kingdom of God. Look what he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of God. See, one who is in the kingdom of God must live radically different than the one in the kingdom of the world. Now, listen, why is this so? Because, listen, if you are a believer, you, are, you have been brought into the kingdom of God, and now you have a new heart, you have a new source and origin of desires. You want things differently than the people in the world do. You've been taken out of the kingdom of the world, you've been put into the kingdom of God, and the evidence of that is that you're poor in spirit. You've given up on your self-righteousness. You've turned to God. I need your mercy. And it's not just a one-time act. This is why his mercies are new every morning. The Those who are poor in spirit remain poor in spirit. It's a completely, radically different way to live. It's the way of the disciple. See, the world lauds a very different spirit, one of self-assurance, self-expression, self-reliance. They don't understand what it means to be poor in spirit. To them, an impoverished spirit hinders success. It will block career advancement. So you've got to express yourself. You've got to believe in yourself. You've got to realize the potential in yourself and go for it. And I'm Pretty sure some of you actually buy into that. 
That's the world's message. And it's utterly in contradiction to Christ's message. See, what the world does is create a never-ending need to pursue something that will make you happy. There is great satisfaction in realizing, finally, that we are paupers before God, yet he has lavished his riches on us. You don't just know that and get saved and then be filled with self-confidence. Listen, the gospel saves us and the gospel keeps us saved. It keeps us poor in spirit so that we shift entirely to our God. It creates the perpetually grateful. Those who come away from the Lord's table, communion with a humble sense of rightness in our low position in Christ's high position. There is great peace when you step off the ladder and you work hard trusting God to give you all that you need to bring glory to him. See, this is the mindset of Jesus. Let this kind of reverberate in your mind for a moment when I read this. Those who are well, Jesus said, have no need of a physician. They've been made rich by the world in their souls. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, there's parallel, a parallel way of interpreting Scripture. And so you get it here. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Sick now ties to sinners. That's how you do it in your Bible. You tie a line and you circle both words. Sinners and sick. Righteous have no need. You see, what the gospel wants to do is help you get to the place and keep you at the place when you realize there's nothing good in you. Nothing in your flesh but for Jesus And he will lavish on you blessings. But the very moment that you begin to think those blessings are of your own origin, that's the moment that you and God begin to separate a little bit and your life now no longer resembles his. See, the gospel produces what is abominable to the world. Now, you might be doubting this because you've been, as I have, steeped in the self-esteem culture of America, right? We're supposed to tell our children a hundred times a day how beautiful, how worthy, how strong they are. Ladies, you are to roar. Men, you are to be courageous and humble. And listen, we've got the world's messages coming at us streaming nonstop. The world finds poverty of spirit abominable. But watch what I show you from the scriptures. The Roman satyrian, do you remember him from Luke? He understood he was not even worthy to have Jesus come to his home. That's poverty of spirit. It produced in Job, the gospel did, the working of God did, as experienced, as he experienced the reality of God, get towards the end of Job, you'll see this, he began to despise himself, and he repented in ashes. That looks like low self-esteem in the world, right? No, this is the beauty of a poor spirit. 
You see it in Isaiah when he saw Jesus on the throne. You remember, Jesus will bring you down before he brings you up. And he all of a sudden saw that he was a man of unclean lips. You've got John the Baptist who sees Jesus and he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I must decrease. He must increase. John inhabited and modeled what it means to be poor in spirit. Peter, depart from me, Jesus, for I am a sinful man. Paul, I am the foremost of sinners. Even get to see it in church history. William Carey, a great missionary whose grave marker reads, quote, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On they, on those kind, or thy kind arms I fall. That's what's on Carey's tombstone. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, on thy kind arms I fall. That's a man whom the gospel brought to a life of a poor spirit. And God used him incredibly. So what the world calls low self-esteem and treats by trying to convince you how good you are in yourself, the Bible calls poor in spirit, and it convinces you how good God is and how faithful God is, and he will use you and bless you with everything you need. Now, this is the power of the gospel. What I'm doing right now is gospel preaching. And gospel preaching always contradicts the world's preaching, always. And the gospel will bring us face to face with God. And listen, if you've not experienced this, Lord willing, you will, maybe, probably, hopefully more than once, but when the gospel brings you face to face with God and you see how utterly impoverished you are in your moral condition and you fling yourself upon his mercy, you will receive the kingdom. That's exactly what he's saying in verse 3. Let me take that from a little bit different direction. If you do not see your moral condition as being what it truly is, and that is corrupt, and that is separate from God, that is rooted in a formidable, unrelenting self Direction. if you don't see that and throw yourself at the mercies of God and ask him to save you and forgive you, you're not in the kingdom of God. You cannot be in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is for those who are poor in spirit. Now listen, this is why this is the first beatitude. They're all in succession. They're all in sequential form. You don't get to the second one until you've come to the first. The Christian is to maintain a poor spirit, for it cultivates a life of submission and utter dependence on God's grace, something that Jesus himself modeled more than any other. He was not in need of the mercies of the Father, for he had no sin. So how did he model what a poor spirit looks like? Listen to this from John 5. I can do nothing on my own, he wrote. He, read, he said, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Why? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, the hours, listen, the hours that Jesus spent in prayer, and you see the poverty of his spirit and his reliance upon his father. 
Now you remember, we're about to go to point number three, and I'm going to fly through it. But remember that the goal of the rabbi in Jewish disciple-making was ultimately to train his disciples to know what he knows, to live like he lives, and to be like him in every way. That's the goal of Jesus for you, Christian brother and sister, and me. This is the great beauty of of Jewish disciple-making. The Jews were made like the rabbi in every way. Paul, the apostle, modeled this. For him, maturity means reaching the fullness of Christ, Ephesians chapter 4. Every believer is to put on the new self created after the likeness of Christ, Ephesians 4, 24. We are to love and forgive one another just like Jesus did, Ephesians 4, 32. And as his children, we are to be imitators of God, Ephesians 5, 1. In short, listen, Jesus is transforming you to be like him. That's what he's doing. And that's what this sermon series is about. Point number three, final one. The evidences of one who is poor in spirit. Now, I don't know if you like if you are like me. I really like practical stuff. Okay, I like the theology, believe me. I love it. I eat it up. I just, uh, I grow and I grow and I grow by knowing the deeper things of God. But I want to know how is this going to impact me? So here we go. Verse, or point number three. What are the evidences of one who is poor in spirit? Now, I'm going to give you seven of them. And they're not original with me. They're from a great Puritan writer, pastor, theologian by the name of Thomas Watson. These are his seven. And I thought they were so good that I wanted to give them to you and I wanted to learn them as well. It might be helpful to take some time this week and see if these evidences of the grace of humility, poor in spirit, are in your life. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. You may not be able to write fast enough. That's all right. They'll be on the website hopefully by Tuesday. Spiritual poverty. What's it look like? What are the evidences? Number one, the humble are increasingly weaned from themselves, losing their self-preoccupation, thinking less of themselves and more of others. You can observe this happening in your life aided by the God who searches your heart. He will show you if you ask, and he will help you be alert throughout the day. Where are my stray thoughts going? When I'm not taking them captive, where are they aiming? Likely, more than not, at yourself until poverty of spirit begins to take hold of your heart. And then you will find yourself coming out of the subconscious to conscious thought, realizing, you know what? My mind was in neutral. By the way, that's not really true. But my mind seemed like it was in neutral, but I was thinking about that person and how to pray for them. That's poverty of spirit. That's the evidence. You catch those unguarded thoughts. You see where their trajectory was to yourself or to others. You can do that if you become intentional. Jesus said, take captive every, or the apostle Paul, take captive every thought. Take it captive to Jesus. Secondly, what are the evidences if you're growing and becoming more and more poor in spirit? 
The humble are lost in the wonder of Christ, wanting nothing more than to be transformed to be like him. Is that an alien desire for you or is that a raging, becoming greater desire for you? Now, I'm going to guess for a lot of us, this is not even on the blip of your radar. Yet, if you're a disciple of Jesus, this is precisely what he's doing. You can cooperate with him. And the more that you desire that, the more cooperation you are to the grace of God. He is making you like him. And it can become your single-minded life goal. Third, the humble do not complain about their situation, no matter how bad it may become. That is a very easy one to watch. Have you noticed, Christian brother and sister, that you don't complain as much? If you're complaining, your spirit is not poor. If you're complaining, you're filled with self-righteous indignation. God is not doing what you think he should. And what is a better way to do it? There is no better way to do it than what you want to be done. That's what produces complaints. They increasingly know, this is still point number three, increasingly know that you deserve worse than anything you ever receive in this life. And to the glory of God, he has given you so many blessings. But there's a fourth evidence that Watson gives. The humble more clearly see the strengths and virtues in others and celebrate them rather than get jealous of them. This is massive. When you begin seeing this pouring out of your life an attitude of thankfulness when someone is blessed, even when you're not, you know that the, that the gospel is at work in you and it is helping you to remain poor in spirit, greater now than ever before. You see, they count others more significant than themselves. They're driven to honor them. That's a fruit of what it means to be poor in spirit. Fifth, the humble will spend increasing amounts of time in prayer. There is an absolute correlation, friends, between poverty of spirit and prayer. And if you are moving deeper into the poverty of your soul, realizing there is nothing good in you, you must go vertical for everything good that God will give you all you need to do all that he's going to ask you to do. When you get more deeply in the belief of that, you will find yourself carried before the throne in prayer as if there was no other place that you wanted to be. It's the vehicle for the poverty of the spirit. They knock often on heaven's gates because they are so profoundly aware of their own need. That's what it means to be a beggar in your soul. You knock over and over in prayer. God, I need your strength. Sixth, the humble take Christ on his terms, readily submitting to his word Whatever it asks, 
That's what it looks like to be poor in spirit. You don't question, you don't debate, you don't challenge God. You might do that now, but as he cultivates this more and more in your life, because he's making you more like Christ, you will go into the gardens of your Gethsemane, you will pour out your soul's hurt and your soul's fears and concerns to God, but after you're done, you will emerge in total yielded submission and peace. You will not seek to go around the difficult demands of Jesus. You will seek to fully obey them. And finally, the humble, those who are poor in spirit, will constantly praise God and make much of his grace. Nothing more characterizes the humble Christian, the one who is poor in spirit, than the one who pours out a constant stream of gratitude to his Lord and his Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing. It is one of the most telltale evidences that the gospel is at work in you. Who are the poor in spirit? They are the ones who have come to the end of their own self-righteousness and have turned vertical to God. They are utterly destitute morally, but they are absolutely confident in his love and his deliverance for them. They are the strongest people this world has ever seen. Amen.